Friends, good morning. Uh, my name's Dave Bast. If we haven't met, that's not surprising because I hardly know anyone here anymore, <laughs> which is wonderful. Uh, but about 30 years ago, I was a pastor here at this church, which is pretty amazing, really, considering I'm, I'm only 41 now. <laughs> I was a child pastor. The boy pastor, they called me. But uh, if you're a regular at Fifth, um, or you've been paying attention, you'll know that our pastor, John Sherrill, is on a much-deserved, hard-earned sabbatical. And he will be gone for the whole summer, three months. And so um, he asked if I would help out a little bit. We still have Pastor Brian and Pastor Sam who will be keeping things moving forward. Um, But uh, I'll be preaching uh, the first half of the summer, a six-part series that we're calling Seeing God. Is that up there? There it is. Seeing God. And it's as I'll say a little bit later, it's entirely appropriate that the idea of seeing God involves opening the book because that's where we see him. That's where we learn about him. I'll say more about the whole series and it's what I hope happens, um, Lord willing, next week. But for now, we want to look at the first in that series of incidents in the Bible where people actually saw God or they saw something of God. We know that God is invisible. He's spirit, Jesus said. John 1, uh, 18 says that no one has seen God. Paul puts it even more strongly in his first letter to Timothy, no one has seen God or can see God. He dwells in unapproachable light. And yet we have these really interesting stories of visions of God. Today we're going to look at one of those from the book of Exodus. Uh, The person who saw God was Moses, and he also learned something about God's name. So I want to talk about that a little bit. His name in the Old Testament, of course his name in the New Testament, we know, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is traditionally called Trinity Sunday because as Pentecost has happened, that's the last of the great events, the great saving acts of God in history, uh, beginning with the creation, then the incarnation, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and finally the sending of the Spirit that enabled Christian believers to understand that ultimately God's name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Before we get to the scripture, just a little bit of a backstory. If you're not familiar with the Bible, or perhaps you're familiar with those favorite parts of yours that don't include the book of Exodus, uh, Exodus is the story, the great saving act of the Old Testament, where God delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt, And he does so in a spectacular way through miraculous signs of judgment on the Egyptians. They dig in their heels. They won't allow the people to go. Finally, they kind of cast them out and shower them with treasure and gifts. And then they come up against the Red Sea and it looks like 
a very short flight, but then God opens a path. As they say in the black church, he made a way out of no way. Uh, that's, that's the kind of thing God does. And they escape into the wilderness. They end up at Mount Sinai, this incredible experience where God comes down and makes a covenant with them, binding himself to them with promises. And you would think, that being the case, that they would just be filled with gratitude and wonder and love. And instead, the whole book of Exodus is the story of one complaint after another. What'd you bring us out here for? Do you mean to kill us? There's no water. We're hungry. What are we going to eat? Oh, Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, <laughs> the fish. Oh, how great Egypt was. <laughs> Have you ever had that experience where <laughs> you look back with kind of rose-tinted hindsight, Egypt, the land of slavery. The last straw, while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from God inscribed on stone tablets, the people say, we don't know what's become of Moses. He's been gone so long. He's probably dead. We need a, a, a more visible expression of God. Make a God for us. So Aaron fashions a golden calf. And God says, you know what? That's the last straw. I've had it. And we see this incredible, we're not going to read it in the interest of time, but in chapter 33, the first part of the chapter, Moses steps into the place of Christ as a mediator an intercessor, and he turns away God's anger. And God who threatens to abandon the people relents. <laughs> Did he change his mind? Hmm, that's an interesting thought. Or did he want us to see what prayer can accomplish? That's a subject maybe for another day. He relents and he says, okay, I'll go with you. And that's the point at which we pick up the story. Hear this conversation between Moses and the Lord from Exodus chapter 33. Moses begins by asking for confirmation from the Lord. You have been telling me, lead these people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and I have found favor with you. Well, if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Show me your glory. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, 
and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft in the rock and will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. So that's pretty interesting, isn't it? God has a face and a back and a hand. And Moses, uh, when God says, okay, I'll stick with you, I'll go with you, Moses says, show me your glory. Think about his request first of all. Show me your glory. What is he really asking for? Moses wants more. <laughs> Moses has already had a remarkable experience with God. Um, he first met God personally at the burning bush back in Exodus 3. I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that later if there's time. Um, but that awe-inspiring experience of seeing a flame in a bush that is self-contained, that is burning without fuel, that needs nothing to feed it, the eternal fire. Moses meets God there and first hears his name. And then, all through the experience of the Exodus, in fact, a little bit earlier uh, in chapter 33, just before the passage that we read, it says that Moses pitched a tent that he called the tent of meeting, uh, apparently a small place just for himself, where he would meet with God outside the camp on the edge, and Exodus says that he spoke with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. So again, what does face mean there if God says you can't see my face? It's obviously symbolic language to speak of the intimacy of relationship that Moses had with God. As a man speaks with his friend. And now Moses wants more. Show me your glory, he asks, as if to say, I, I want to know you more deeply. You know, here's the thing. People who know God casually, or maybe know him very little, if they're brought to speak to God, usually ask him for things. Do this, give me that. People who know God intimately, when they speak with God, ask him for him. That's all they want. I've been listening uh, to several and reading. Um, I guess reading is more appropriate. It's been, it's been more reading of uh, articles and tributes uh, to Tim Keller, the great reformed preacher, apologist, pastor, uh, who was called home to be with the Lord last month. And David Brooks had an appreciation for him in the New York Times. 
in which he quoted Tim this way. Anybody who has tasted the reality of God knows anything is worth losing for this. And nothing is worth keeping if it means losing this. That's Moses. He's tasted the reality of God and he asked for more. Show me your glory. Show me the depth of your being. Your ne- I want to know you in your true nature. And God says, God's reply is you can't, you can't do that. I'll, sh- I'll make my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim my name to you, but you can't see my face. You can't know me as I know myself. No human can do that. Which, which is really profound, and I'd have to be a theologian to tease that out, but one thing that it means is there's always more of God that lies beyond. We can know him truly, but we can't know him fully. And all eternity will not bring us to the end of God. It's not going to be a static existence where we say, oh, okay, I guess that's it. There's nothing more. (laughs) Because there will always be more of God. And we will always be able to go deeper, as Moses wanted to here. So God puts him in, he hideth my soul in the cleft of a rock. That shadows a dry, thirsty land and covers me there with his hand. This is obviously symbolic language, not literal language. But it's Moses being shown the character of God, the goodness of God. So I want to think about those two things because presumably uh, the first part of this conversation took place in the tent of meeting, of, of meeting. And Moses has come down from Mount Sinai and that golden calf thing, if you know the story, he broke the tablets with the Ten Commandments. He was so mad and so angry. And then there was a bunch of trouble in the camp and a bunch of people died. And so then this conversation with God where he says, okay, I'll show you what I can, what you can receive of me. I'll, I'll show you that. I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. In chapter 30, then Moses goes back up on the mountain. God says in chapter 34, cut two more tablets, come on back up the mountain, and the conversation continues where God actually does this. He proclaims his name and he shows Moses his goodness. This is what it says. Exodus 34, verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So let's start with the name and then talk about the goodness that passes 
before Moses' eyes because this is the ultimate revelation of this vision. The name, the Lord. I said a little bit about his New Testament name, his Old Testament name, the Lord, and incidentally, we witnessed it in baptism again, baptized in the name singular of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. One God, the Lord, who exists eternally in three persons, that's the Trinity. But the Hebrew name, again, this may be familiar to you if you're a Bible reader or a longtime church attender. If it's, if it's familiar, bear with me. If it's not, I think it's interesting because the name the Lord in your English Bible, if you're looking, is usually printed a special way in, in all caps, small caps, big capital L and then small cap O-R-D. So if you see it printed that way, you know that it's the divine name. Yahweh is how it's usually pronounced nowadays in Hebrew. In fact, the reason we're not entirely sure how it was pronounced is because it consists of four letters, four consonants, Y-H-W-H. And so sacred was the name that for many centuries, going all the way back to the Old Testament, devout Jews would not pronounce it even when it was written in the text of the Bible, they would often substitute the word Hashem, which means the name. So if they were reading Exodus uh, 34, verse six, which I just read, Hashem passed before him and proclaimed Hashem, Hashem, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now the other thing about the name, aside from its holiness, is what it tells us about God. It's a form of the, of the verb to be. And so it's often translated in Exodus 3, the story of the burning bush, the fire that is self-contained, burning with no fuel. Moses, uh, Moses is told, well, okay, I want you to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. That's your job. And Moses is 80 years old. He's been living in the wilderness as a shepherd for 40 years. He's wanted for murder, as far as he knows, back in Egypt 40 years ago. He's gonna show up all of a sudden and uh, announce to the people and to Pharaoh, hey, God has sent me uh, to release you, to free you. So Moses thinks about this for a minute and he says, uh, can I have a name, please? Uh, could, could you tell me who you are exactly that you're authorizing me to do this? And God says, my name is I am. I am who I am. Or it could be I will be who I am. He is the eternal one. He is self-existent, uncreated. He is pure being, he simply is. And he always is what he is. He who was and is and is to come, says John in Revelation one. Grace to you from him who was and is and is. He is the great I am, eternal, unchangeable. Thou changest not, 
Thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Right? It's kind of fifth theme hymn, by the way. Hint, spoiler alert. It's coming. So that's the name that God reveals. And, and in it, he tells us much about who he is. But the question still remains, well, okay, your absolute being, we're all derived from you, we are all contingent, you are the creator, you alone exist eternally, everything else comes from you, we get that, but what are you like? What are you eternally that you're always the same? And so God says, I will make my goodness pass before you, my goodness. You can't really see ultimately my face, but you can know my goodness. You see, goodness, whether it's in God or us, is not an abstract quality. Goodness has to do with what you do. You show yourself to be good by doing good. And that's how it is with God. If you wanna know what his goodness is, ask what he's done. Look what he's done for them. He's saved them, he's delivered them, and he's sustained them all those years in the wilderness. That's God, God's goodness. And he spells it out in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Interesting, isn't it? When it comes right down to it, Moses doesn't see a vision, he hears a word. Because ultimately, God will show us what he's like through his word. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I was talking about this with uh, John Hilber not too long ago. Some of you know and will remember the Hilbers uh, till they moved away about a year ago, members of the congregation. John's an Old Testament professor. And I said to him, um, you know, this is kind of God's essential character, right? His goodness consists in these things. And he said, yes. And I like to call that verse the John 3.16 of the Old Testament because it occurs again and again and again, and it's the basic truth that is revealed about God in the Old Testament. He's gracious. We, we heard it in Psalm 103, which is introduced, by the way, by the phrase, he made known his ways unto Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. And I think that's referring to this story. He made known his ways to Moses. This is who I am. You want to know about me? I'm good. <laughs> and his, his goodness consists in four things. So, quickly. He's merciful and gracious. He is gracious and merciful. Grace is an attitude. It's undeserved favor unearned favor, mercy is an action, undeserved forgiveness, unmerited forgiveness. You know about mercy, right? 
I was, uh, I had just made a hospital call in the, when we were living, or we lived for a time in the south suburbs of Chicago, quite a while. It's a big railroad area. There's a lot of train tracks. And I had just been making a hospital call in a couple of towns away, and I was kind of hurrying, and I was, I came to this intersection, and all of a sudden, the gate went down. And there was a train track running diagonally through the intersection. And I looked around, and I thought, eh, the train's not even here yet. I don't even have to cross the tracks. So I snuck around, made a right-hand turn, and there sat a state trooper. <laughs> and he walked up. I rolled the window down, gave him my license. He said, do you know, in, in the state of Illinois, going around a railroad barrier is a $500 fine? And he walked away. <laughs> yeah. And I sat there thinking, $500? This is quite a few years ago. Oh my goodness, what am I going to tell Betty Jo? <laughs> and he let me sit there for about five minutes. You know, he sat in his car checking things out. And came back and he said, don't do it again. Have a nice day. That's mercy. <laughs> Justice would have been slap the ticket on him. I, I was guilty. Mercy is undeserved forgiveness. You're guilty, you're forgiven. He is gracious and merciful, and he's free in his mercy. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. You can't make him. You can't for but the, the beautiful thing is, mercy's free. <laughs> it can be yours for the asking. And exhibit A is the people of Israel, which brings us to the next element of his goodness, his patience. He is slow to anger. I love that, that word. We translated, used to be translated long-suffering. Long-suffering. God isn't quick-tempered, you know? He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't have a short fuse. Those are all expressions we use, aren't they? For the person who's always angry. God is long-suffering. God is slow to anger. And again, exhibit A is his treatment of Israel. How many times did they deserve to be just wiped out? There's a tremendous song in the book of Psalms. We don't have time for it today, but read it sometime. Psalm 106. It's basically the story of Exodus, the first half, and then it goes on from there to detail all the times Israel turned away from God, even to the point of being exiled. And it ends, it was written somewhere sometime in the exile where the psalmist saying, be merciful to us, God. And he is because he's not only patient, he is faithful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, another great Old Testament word, covenant love, the love that keeps on loving faithfully, the God who will keep his promises. So that's who he is. He loves simply because he loves. He forgives because he's merciful. He keeps his promises because he's faithful. 
Oh, and there's one other thing, isn't there? He's also just. He will by no means clear the guilty, it says. Aren't you glad that he's also just? Would you want to live in a world where guilt or innocence didn't matter? Where the strong and the rich and the powerful could do whatever they pleased and get away with it? But there is a God who will not tolerate evil and will not simply excuse the guilty because he's just. So that sets up a dilemma, doesn't it, for God? How can he be gracious and merciful and still uphold justice and refuse to clear the guilty? And it all leads us here, doesn't it? In the Old Testament, in fact, it leads right on to the book of Leviticus, where God reveals that a sacrifice for sin must be offered, but he'll accept a substitute provisionally for a lot of years and a lot of centuries until the true sacrifice came, God in person taking our nature upon himself. There's also a sequel to the story, and I'm out of time, but it's, it's a great sequel because it says when Moses came down from the mountain the second time with that new set of, of the Ten Commandments, his face was shining so brightly from being in the presence of the eternal flame that he had to put a veil over it so the people weren't scared. And the apostle Paul picked up on that and said, you know what, that veil that Moses wore, nowadays when the gospel is shared, the good news of what, Jesus has, what God has done in Jesus for us, that veils over the face of unbelievers. They don't see it. They don't get it. They don't care. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That's what Paul says. So turn to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen.